Hey everyone, uh, this podcast show, first of all, it's, it's not a super sexy subject to talk about safety uh, and OSHA and all these things, but I stumbled across a person via LinkedIn. He lives here locally in Columbia, and I don't think you will find someone more passionate about anything in life than you're about to find with Thomas. And he is genuinely an expert in this field. He's going to break down the things you need to know about your business. So if you're a small business or a big business listening to this, he will, he will break it down for you on the things that will prevent you from huge fines inside your business and things that will protect your company. And these are not expensive things that you, should, that you need to spend a bunch of money on. They're not complicated. It does take a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. And I can tell you this about Thomas. He has the heart of a teacher. You will, you will see that loud and clear through this episode. So if you have any questions at all, you'd access to resources. We'll put as much as we can in the show notes, but he is here to help you. And a lot of times he doesn't want to get paid for it. He's just passionate about this. He's passionate about saving lives, passionate about helping prevent an injury. So it's really great to meet people like this. That's what I love about this podcast is running across people like Thomas. So sit back, grab a popcorn, uh, maybe even a cocktail. Enjoy the episode. Love to hear your feedback at the end of it. Welcome to the DL. I am your host, Tyler Robertson, the CEO and founder of Diesel Laptop. And this conversation is going to be something well long overdue. And if you work in a heavy equipment in the diesel repair industry at all, trucking, you know this is a dangerous profession. People get hurt all the time. People die all the time. I just heard a stat the other day about tow truck drivers and how often those fatalities happen. But there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and there's things that you should be doing as a business to protect yourself. There's probably things you don't know you should be doing. So I figured, you know what? What are the odds I can go find an expert in that field? So I found, and the gentleman sitting to my left over here, because today we're actually doing this in the studio, which is, which is great, not having to do a Zoom session. Uh, so I brought today with me Thomas Clark. So Thomas, man, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I think like any industry professional, there's always certifications. There's always experience. Like, this is your world. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and some of the certifications and some of the, like, this is your passion, essentially. Yeah, it definitely is my passion. So my name is Thomas Clark. Uh, so I work as a industrial regional kind of safety. So I run three major facilities. Uh, previously, I worked in regulatory. So I worked for Sacramento DHEC as the safety director for the agency. Uh, for my credentials, I have a certified safety professional. That's kind of like your Willy Wonka golden ticket in the safety world. I also have a certified hazardous material manager's license. So I'm like one of three or so that hold both in South Carolina. Um, I also have a master's in management leadership and a master's in occupational safety. And then on my Fun side, I do firefighting. So I have my EMT and I actually specialize in, in hazardous materials. So I do a lot of emergency scenes, hazmat cleanup, all that realm uh, as a volunteer. So I donate those services to the state and then I teach all over the state of South Carolina, teaching all Man, those. You know, you can just tell when someone has a passion for something because like everything <laughs> in life follows that, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you can tell you're, you're forced to be reckoned it's with. It's like and... the second mistress. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So wait, are there any certs you don't have yet that you're going for? Or is it kind of like you've checked all the boxes at this point? Uh, there's always new certs I want to go for. It just comes down to the money to get them. 
So I'm debating going for my paramedic license. Uh, that's really so I can teach more to rural areas of South Carolina that are in need. And then I'm looking at industrial hygiene manager, but the math is really hard. So I applied to a grant to see if I can get that. And then I'm working on an advanced safety cert through National Safety Council. Yeah. But it just comes down to money and actually getting classes because COVID has canceled a lot of things. So people are starting to pick things back up. Yeah. So I know we kind of met a couple months ago, it was. And it's because I was like, man, we're building this online platform. Mm -hmm. I know for me to put training out there for diesel techs and shop owners and mobile guys and equipment operators, safety is a big, a big thing in this, right? And really, I mean, it's embarrassing to say, but I'm, I'm not a safety guy. Like, I, I, yeah. I you know, I, I know the bare minimum. And I really, I own a business. We got 200 some employees. I have trucks here. We're, yeah. we're, we're doing stuff. And I worked in shops forever. Like, I never got safety training as a shop Correct. manager. I never, there's a couple things our technicians had to do. And it was just like checking boxes for HR departments. So I kind of took it, took it half yeah, serious. That's right? what most people do. Yeah. So. so I guess let's just start here. If there's someone listening to this, they're a small business, they're a shop owner. Like, can you just like, what are some basic, like, is there some legality stuff? Like, how does it work? Is OSHA make the laws and uphold the laws or, or what's the, the, the base level that, that people need to at least be aware of? So I think we should define the terms. So for business owners, we all know the term risk. We right in business, you take risk. So all what risk is is you're exposed to a hazard which can cause some type of loss. And as a business owner, you always want to mitigate risk. You also take risk to grow business, right? And so that's a term that a lot of people can apply to. Safety is being able to operate without the risk. So our job is to reduce risk slowly. And I hate to say a lot of safety professionals, they never really been trained in risk management. So they struggle with, they just know, check the boxes, walk around with a clipboard, slap people around, write people up, really hammer the rules. But in my world, and I kind of focused on the new realm of safety called human organization performance, I don't really write people up. I don't struggle. I make more as an ed educator like I am here today. So OSHA, they do make the rules but as we all know congress is kind of hamstring and they can't really pass laws right now the most of your osha standards are 50 years old they haven't been updated to the newest uh and this is where it kind of falls on the business owner to kind of sort through the weeds and try to find out what is the best practice to manage the risk to my business because risk if not controlled will have some type of exposure which will cause loss to the business yeah I think what was interesting when we met before, when you explained to me, you're like, hey, OSHA, that's like really the bare minimum, bare minimum <laughs> that you should be doing. Right. And yeah. I, I think as my company, we've always done either the bare minimum or what the insurance companies told us we have to yeah. do. Right. Like there's been some things like that. Um, it, what would you say? So say you're starting a repair shop, right? Is there is there some like bare minimum stuff that you would recommend a business owner needs to think about if they're like, hey, okay, we're gonna be working on heavy trucks or heavy equipment. What are some of the legal? Do you know what some of the legalities are that OSHA would even require at that at that stage? So for OSHA, they do try to do outreaching and education. So any of your state websites or federal website is going to give you like a business one on one checklist that you can walk through. However, a lot of people, that is like a legal document that they just glaze through, you know. 
Um, so we do have like programs that I'll mention today, but going back to where he said OSHA is a bare minimum. Uh, and the biggest example I always pull out is exposure limits to chemicals. How much can you breathe in and be exposed to? Uh, they're back from the 70s, you know, and they actually get updated every two or three years through a private organization. Uh, so you have all these small private organizations like the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, uh, ANSI, that's your international standard. So you have all these private companies in a way, nonprofits, well, I want to say nonprofits, but they basically publish out these standards, but then they put them behind paywalls. So how as a business owner, are you able to access them, you know, if you can't meet the most current? Um, and that's kind of the struggle. Uh, so today we're really going to hammer and I kind of picked the most cited in OSHA. So what are the, the low hanging fruit and inspector comes out? But in all honesty, the likelihood of an OSHA inspector coming to your site, very, very, very small. Okay. So I, I got to ask this question, right? Like, we obviously had Biden months ago. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court struck this down, right? But Biden went out and signed an executive order for COVID and required testing. Mm -hmm. And they're like, OSHA's going to uphold the law. And then when they actually, I saw the number of actual like OSHA employees, I was like, how the heck are like, I don't know, it wasn't many. It was like a couple Correct. thousand I'm like across the whole country. So you're saying that OSHA doesn't come out that often. They're just not that big or they're not funded well or uh, it's a multitude. So without getting too much into the politics, if you don't like regulatory and you can't overturn it, you just defund it. So that's been done to the IRS. That's been done to OSHA. That's been a lot to agencies that regulate safety yeah. in America. Uh, and that's where you start getting like the baby formula issues that was in yeah. the news recently. Uh, I can speak in South Carolina. But, uh, South Carolina OSHA inspector maybe makes 40000 yeah. And they're stressed out. They're stretched thin. After two years, they work in private and make double. Yeah. And nobody likes them when they show up either, right? And I know in Sacramento D Hug it's the same issues. You yeah. have on-site wastewater septic tank inspectors. They make a lot more in private. So you have that end of it. The second one is there's so many businesses in the United States now, right? Entrepreneurship yeah. is huge here. So how are you going to respond to every business? It's just not feasible. So they put focuses. So if you have a major injury, a fatality, a complaint to you are a special in industry that they're focusing on. So agriculture right now for heat ex exhaustion, they just had one in Florida. Um, so you're going to see them pop out just for that purpose. Uh, most times you will see them if someone gets hurt and you will see them if an employee complains. Yeah. Um, and that is when you don't want to see them. Yeah. How much do the states play a role? Like South Carolina DHAC, I'm assuming every state's got their own agency. Are so, they... It really comes down to you have federal OSHA, which is through the president, uh, and they have a cabinet. So a state can say, we want to make our own plan. And all that they do is they make the same requirements, and they can make them more stringent than federal. Yeah. So California, classic example, they're very stringent on environmental because yeah. they have a lot of environmentally sensitive areas. Yeah. Um, so they're very, very strict. They way exceed federal requirements. But the bare minimum, you have to meet federal. Now, some of the more conservative states throw up their hands and say, we're going to let the federal government just manage it so we don't have to put the money toward it. Yeah, so it's very similar. We're doing this whole emission tampering detection thing. And mm -hmm. every state kind of does different things. A lot of 
funding yep, issues going same thing on, on the EPA. So, if yeah. you want to have it federally run or you can have it state run. Yeah. Yeah. You I know. had no idea there were state level EPAs until, until yep. recently. And that was Sacramento DHEC decides to manage, but they make it more stringent because we have marine areas yeah. and we're near big cities. So there's a lot more pollutants to control. Well, uh, those are all great. I know you got some like kind of low hanging fruit stuff we wanted to get through here. Mm-hmm. So why don't we, why don't we go through the first one? One or two. Uh, so the first one we'll talk about is going to be record keeping. Uh, record keeping is kind of the bare minimum. So when an ocean inspector arrives on site, when they present their badge, they're going to bring to a conference room and they're going to ask for records. And if your first response is, uh, I don't know. Are these like employee records or are these um, like policies and procedures? solely injury records. Okay. Uh, it's called your OSHA 300 log. Yep. Um, this is what we talked about the other day. So you can go online through the federal site and you can look up your business code of you know what you produce, what you do. But most of you in this industry are going to have to comply. Uh, and then you can get the form as a PDF or an Excel that you can type in. But it's basically just a simple form that if you have 10 plus more employees that you have to every year document your injuries. And they put thresholds out there. I gave you a uh, cheat sheet on the USB drive that, for example, if it goes beyond first aid, so they get stitches, they get a splint with metal in it, um, any of that type of things, it becomes what we call a recordable incident. If they miss work, if you transfer their job, if you have a fatality amputations, there's a lot of different criteria that are in there. Um, from there, you're required to post that log pretty much from a certain date. Uh, it's usually from that February to April time frame, and it has to be in the public place. And then you keep those logs for a certain number of years. But they're going to ask to see your three previous years. Also, they're going to ask if you've been having an employee get injured, you have seven days from that injury notification to put it on your log. Okay. So if you do not do that, and then you present it to an OSHA inspector and you haven't marked it, you just hit yourself with a violation right there. Yeah. Is it so they get fines for violations? Are they warning tickets or how do they how do they do that? They do. So the fines have actually been recently adjusted for inflation. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. They're like twelve thousand dollars. Oh. Uh and if you are willful, so if someone like myself or you knew that you did something bad and you hit it, yeah. it can go up to a hundred plus thousand dollars. Um, most times OSHA is willing to wheel and deal and negotiate at the table and they yeah. cut it down to three or four thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, but you never want to be at that route. You never want to start off with a finding. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that's like there's no going back. Like the, the the rabbit starts digging. They're gonna start peeling that onion back looking for more. Um, so that record keeping is huge. Now I will say every state has an OSHA training institute. So our region four is at NC State and Georgia Tech. They offer a very cheap eight hour record keeping class for like 200 bucks. And you can go and state people come and teach you how to do the record keeping for very, very cheap. You don't need to pay giant Buku's amount of money to like JJ Keller or some of the other big names for software. You're just a small company. Yeah. Take a class, read about it. They try to make it as easy because that's the biggest thing that people struggle with is record keeping. So, so let's go. You mentioned JJ Keller, right? Mm-hmm. And as a business owner, I get these emails every year. Oh, you're not in compliance. You need to get the new poster. Sure. You need to buy the new book. You need to buy the whatever. Mm-hmm. Do, I really, do I really have to buy that stuff every year from these people? So JJ Keller, they get a lot of hate. 
in my world, but I actually gave you some of their material because they are great for people that need an off-the-shelf solution. However, it doesn't wave a magic wand and says you're fully in compliance. For example, chemicals, you have to train the ones on your site. But they do offer you a off-the-shelf without having to deal with a lot of hassle back and forth. You get a good DVD, good videos, written documentation, a training. That, for most small companies, is more than enough. Yeah. Uh, and if you're smart, you make copies of the materials they give you. And then you are, you know, for a thousand bucks, you are in compliance and showing compliance. Showing compliance to an understaffed agency goes a long ways because they don't want to find more problems and have to put more resources on a problem. So JJ Keller is great for small businesses, but for companies that can afford it and make that customized training that fits, yeah. they'll have a lot better training success and in their injuries and their retention and everything will show. I always just felt like they were kind of selling stuff you can get for free anyway on some of the websites, like just kind of repackaging it and being like, yeah, so in the safety world, everything's existed for 50 years. <laughs> so the creativity aspect has diminished. Um, everything is stolen and retyped, uh, re-imaged, rehashed. You know? So they're selling you generic knowledge that's out there. Uh, that's one of the things that I work on providing to small businesses for very low cost or coming to things like this educating. Because sometimes even that $1,000 is a lot of money to spend when you can go on OSHA's website and get training PowerPoints with the same materials. Well, you just have to lecture it. Like we get that new poster every year, right? That has yeah. like a minimum wage and everything. I'm like, guys, I don't think this has changed in like 15 years here, no. but we keep buying a new one every single year. Really the only thing in South Carolina that's really important is to make sure you have your posters, but also your workers' comp poster. Yeah. But LLR puts it for free on her website <laughs> that you can print out. So sometimes a quick Google search is all yeah. what you need. Do you can hire, there's a lot of consulting companies out there that sell you like a one package and then they baby your stuff. They may spend like an hour a month making sure that you're meeting the bare minimum. Yeah. But what you put in the safety, you get out. So they say for every dollar you spend, you get $3 in return. Yeah. So. Makes sense. All right. So we got record keeping. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the next one on the list? The next big one is going to be our, what we call hazardous communications. And this is huge because it becomes a great burden to employees and employers. So whenever you hire an employee, you have the responsibility to train them on the chemicals in their area, explain what PPE you're using, how you use that PPE, and what to do in case of emergency. You as an employer have a responsibility to conduct a chemical inventory of your work site and identify anything that follows underneath OSHA's physical and health hazards. Um, from there, with that chemical inventory, you have to provide safety data sheets for that. That is another marketing slash spend a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, type, yeah. Uh, MSDS thing. websites. And yeah, so and Vector stuff. Solutions or something like that is the big one. MSDS Online is what they were called. Uh, it's like $10,000, can be. You yeah. know, it's very expensive. Um, and then they charge you per user sometimes or site. <laughs> so when I worked at the agency, uh, Sacramento DX, I had like 90 plus sites I was managing and they wanted me to pay three grand for each site. The state's <laughs> poor. We can't afford that. We can let alone barely afford one. Um, so everything has to be accessible. So safety data sheets have to be accessible to employees wherever they're at in the field working. Uh, if they have a question, it has to be accessible. So that turns into a huge selling thing that a lot of companies sell. From there, if you change anything, 
You have to retrain. Um, you also have to have a written program. So you have to have a document that you can hand over and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so that, again, adds like special knowledge that people consider. Uh, you also have to make sure that you're documenting everything. So there's J.J. Keller again, Stells, the beautiful GHS posters with all the labels and stuff. Uh, for small companies, sometimes I tell them to buy that, stick it on the wall. So if an OSHA inspector comes in, you can say, this is what we do training. Whenever we hire, this is what we walk through and give them examples. So it's very affordable. Uh, from there, though, hazardous communication really starts coming in a problem because it's so easy to miss something. You know, yeah. like how many chemicals do you have in a work truck? Yeah, I don't know if you stop at an <laughs> auto zone and you know because yeah. you need something right yeah, away. Starting fluid. Yeah. Bam, you got a new chemical that's hazardous and highly flammable and it's reactive. Yeah. So it comes into an easy way for OSHA to start like throwing punches. Yeah. Um, I encourage out of this one, there are free programs. So I always turn people to the North Carolina Department of Labor site. They have free OSHA programs. It's a Word document, and it has a fill-in-the-blank. So you can literally, for free, fill in the blanks, and it makes a hazardous communication. And you're, and you're compliant then. You're compliant there. Yeah. The next one is, as a business owner, we talked about managing risk. For the love of anything, please do not have 300 different chemicals on a work truck, you know, <laughs> five different brands of a starter fluid. This comes down to cost control, which is a big part of yeah. business risk, uh, procurement, and making sure that you are managing what your employees can access. Yeah. So having, you know, if you can keep your brand a brake cleaner, your brand a spark, whatever you have, keep it down to one, your SDS sheet turns from three to 500 down to 50. Yeah. And but that makes it so much easier. Uh, for me, when I deal with small business that can't afford a lot, every business normally has a website, yeah. right? So if you can make a portal that employees can log into through their phones, and then you have a Dropbox with all your safety data sheets that you keep updated, they have remote access right there. And then you keep, you know, for me, I always keep paper copies or it's not really required, but you just need to have it accessible to employees. If you yeah. can show that you have it accessible, easy, most employees already have a website so they can easily add something yeah. and you have your plan. And when you hire an employee, you just train them. Training takes 15, 20 minutes, and you written documentation of it, you met your so, goals. I mean, what I'm learning here is it doesn't need to be complex and expensive. No. There are simple and inexpensive ways, even free ways. Always to keep it this. simple. Yeah. The KISS method. So I got another question for you. And this is really specific, but I'm just mm -hmm. thinking of my industry, right? Truck broke down the side of the road or an excavator broke down, blows a hydraulic line, blows a fuel line, and now you got fuel or oil all over the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Is there like things they should be doing those situations to clean that up properly. Cause I, I can imagine most people in our industry just kind of like leave it there <laughs> or brush some dirt over it. Like, is there something you're supposed to do or what, where's the it really on comes on your state. So yeah. that's, we're starting to follow up in the EPA side. Uh, so you do have a responsibility to manage oil and that kind of follows underneath what they call circle law. Uh, we're not going to go down that rabbit yeah. hole today, <laughs> but, uh, it is, the good environment of responsibility. And I always encourage people to carry spill kits that can manage up to 25 gallons uh, and that you brush stuff on. But I will tell you as a firefighter, I've used sand on the side of the road or dirt to clean up so many car wrecks, you know, type things. 
But really, when you start going over that 20, 30, especially 55 gallons, that's when you have to remediate. Uh, you can be found liable in this sense because oil is a pollutant. Yeah. You know? um, so small spills, as long as you make an effort to clean and remove, you're good. But you still have to provide employees the training of what to do. Hydraulic fluid can get really hot, so it can cause scalding issues. So again, the PPE requirement comes in. Uh, don't be like a company that I just worked with that they had a spill of that type of object and they gave their employees mop and nitro gloves that burned, you know, whatever they did anything. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you do have a responsibility. And this is where I encourage you build uh, standard operating procedures. Uh, and there's templates all over online for my employees and companies I work with. One page. Here's what you do in a spill. It's in a binder in the truck. So we have all our emergency information for them when they have an emergency. Here's what they're doing in the spill and your responsibilities. And again, that kind of meets your training requirements. So they have a reference to go back to. Man, I love, you look at a wealth of knowledge in this space, right? It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Uh, do, you have a, do you have another low-hanging fruit one that you want to talk about? Uh, PPE. This is one that a lot of people struggle with. I, I never even heard the acronym before COVID. <laughs> yeah. So it is uh, what we call personal protective equipment. So my world, again, I manage risk. I'm a risk manager. I don't like this term safety because no one wants to deal with you when, I, when you say safety manager. We look at, we want to eliminate risk. So the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, they go out and they make something called a hierarchy of controls. And what that is, is that they want to eliminate the hazard. That's the best way to reduce risk. Just get rid of the hazard. If that's not possible, we're going to substitute the hazard out for something less hazardous. Hazardous chemical to a non-hazardous chemical. If that's not possible, we're going to put a guard on it. We're going to engineer something to basically keep you from touching whatever the hazard is. Finally, if that don't work, we're going to tell you not to touch it. That's an administrative control. We're gonna provide some training or policy. But then finally, the very bottom and the most dangerous is, hey, I can't guarantee you're not gonna have contact with this, it's gonna harm you. So I'm gonna put body armor on you and call it personal protective equipment to give it a better name <laughs> and go forth. So a lot of employees don't think about it that way. They just think it's an obnoxious, overbearing thing that my employer requires me to wear. In actuality, employers basically stating, I can't protect you from this, so I have to strap something on you. <laughs> Good luck. Type I, thing. I never thought of it as the least effective thing as PPE. Correct. Right? Like that's, yeah. that's kind of my mind never worked in that way. Correct. So with PPE, it's expensive. And we found another huge market that they can build business owners <laughs> to get stuff out. Okay. Uh, PPE is very expensive. Employers, you know, they don't like paying for it. Employees lose it, they damage it, they get stolen, it gets broken, it gets thrown in the back of the trucks, it gets dirty and feels when you're working on things. Gloves, especially, is a big hassle. Uh, so OSHA basically states that you must train your employees in PPE and how to put it on and its limitations and all that other rounds that comes to using an object. From there, you, the employer, also have to access the workplace and document, written documentation of the hazards in the workplace. So we actually call that a hazard assessment. This is something that is basically you're documenting, okay, if you're working on this type vehicle, this is how it can hurt you. You theorize in your brain, this is how I'm protecting you based on that kind of pyramid that we talked about. So 
okay, we're going to lock something out. That's an administrative policy of locking out. And I'm going to put engineer by putting some barrier to keep that thing from moving to hurt you. So everything goes back to this, this triangle. But you as a employer have to have documentation. Again, there are numerous templates online, and they are called Job Hazardous Analysis, J-H-A's. These are usually something you want and done, and then you just review them. A truck, you know, isn't going to change that much over the years. So if you got a few for like your common task, what you're doing, that's what you do, and you got your PPE. From there, this is where business owners get upset, is OSHA mandates the employer must pay for the PPE. Uh, and that can come down to shoes when there's a lot of little rules yeah, I on mean, shoes. Steel tone boots. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, right? Yeah. Like, and this is crazy, but like, I really, my employees, they just tell me when they need new shoes because I'm not going to babysit shoes. You know, like, <laughs> employee with happy feet are a productive employee. When you have sore toes, kind of like the military, you're not going to be very, you know, productive in mind on task. Uh, from there, you are also required to basically document everything in this realm, usually with some type of policy. Um, what I just encourage for business owners is don't think it's PPE as a major cost instance, which it is expensive. But um, I'll give you an example from Cyclone DHEC is I had a lab that does testing and they have what they do, pipetting. So they squeeze a little thing to fill valves. And they were doing this 90% of their job. And so they got an injury called pipette thumb. The surgery to repair that was about 30 grand. I walked into the lab and I was like, how many people have had this surgery? And what they would do is they would hire someone, pipette them to death. And when they were broken, move them to a different role in the lab and hire a new person. <laughs> they were up to like three or four people over the last few years. And then the people would just quit. The robot to do it automatically was 18,000. <laughs> So you're going to pay through injuries, basically, yeah. you know, and morale and employees not happy, not taken care of. They're going to leave. So you spend money in training, which is super expensive, uh, having to bring someone up to your culture and your speed. So PPE is actually the cheaper. It's a direct cost, but you don't really see the indirect until you get that workers' comp premium bill and you start seeing how much money is going out the door. Yeah. So... You know, I know in our world, our guys are on ladders all the time. They're high on trucks, on trailers, up on equipment. Talk to me a little bit about fall protection. So fall protection is where it really starts getting deep. And this is where OSHA does not do the best. They refer out the private standards I talked about. Fall protection is the hardest thing to keep up with. Um, it has, we start getting in the world of special training and OSHA starts throwing some terms around like qualified person and competent person and authorized user. So all these terms start swirling. For fall protection, we're going to really hammer it down to like four points uh, for people. If your employee is working more than four feet off the ground, it is in their best interest to be tied off. Now, I know other industries have like steel erectors and construction have different requirements. But most falls over four feet that I've personally responded to don't come out with successful outcomes. Well, just a quick side story there is when I was growing up, my, my dad had a company and they had an electrician that worked for him for years, like way up on, you know, 50 feet in the air doing stuff and buildings and this concrete plants. And the other guy retired, literally was up like on the third step of a ladder, trimming the, trimming the branch off of some trees, fell, broke his back, paralyzed on the waist down. Yep. So it doesn't take 
much of a fall no. for bad things to happen. So Amazon just had a fatality at three and a half feet. You know, that's, that's crazy. And it's like, just because the center of gravity and where you turn and you land on your head. Yeah. You know, it's kind of how it is. Uh, so just remember, tying off is important. So providing your employees an opportunity. Uh, number two is you have to have someone in your company that is actually trained, like deeply trained in fall protection. And we usually call that a competent person. And that person can identify hazards and select the proper fall protection to correct and reduce the risk to that hazard and also conduct your inspections that are required and document it and also manage your fall protection written program that you have. To this competent person, there is some cost to it. And this is where I encourage you to go to, I personally only use DBI Stala or Miller, the big name companies, because they put a lot of money investment research. The stuff you buy at Lowe's is good, but it won't last you nearly as long. But DBI and Miller have a roving kind of training class and they got like a little mobile where they can basically uh, do mock falls with dummies and you can see the equipment work. They have all the equipment for you to inspect. And then their experts will help you build your program if needed to help you pick out what will work and will not work. Those resources are a lot better than going off the shelf to like Lowe's and not knowing. My biggest thing when I come to major incidences um, is you'll see that someone has fallen and the gear that they have picked to mitigate that fall was too long and they still hit the ground before their fall to protection deploys. And that's very common with the shock absorbing lanyards, kind of the, uh, the uh, stretchy bands yeah. that are out there. That If you're 12 feet, you're six feet tall, your lanyard you know, is six feet, that's 12 feet it's automatically and yeah. you're not going to help. You know? yeah. uh, so it's very, very important you have that competent person. Um, the next one, again, and I just kind of hinted at it, is know your work. This is part of your job hazard analysis. We talked about PPE is what is the distance they're going to fall? If you select, for example, what in the industry is known as a yo-yo or self-retracting lifeline is basically like a line that's on a retractable wheel and you fall and it has a break. Is that wheel allowed to be used at your feet or on your back? So picking out your equipment, but knowing your distance of your work is critical. For my employees at my facility, I basically do everything at six foot. So I know that this SRL is what they call them, self-retracting lifeline, will stop an employee in two and a half feet. I know that for my employees, anything about 10 feet, they're generally stopped. From that, we have to use other methods, ladders, uh, platforms, and other things to mitigate that risk. Uh, it's something we work very hard into making it where employees don't have to think about it. It's just there for them. So, you know, I, I guess I want to talk about responsibility a little bit when it comes to safety. So... I'm just, as you're talking here, I'm going through my head thinking of all the things that have happened that I've been around with. And I, I'm guessing anyone in my industry has had similar things. Like I know people who have, you know, lost fingers from picking up heavy things mm -hmm. and trying to catch them. People that things fall on their feet and had had problems and back problems and, and all these things. Um, I know I know of people at local companies where literally been killed within the tra the trailer and the truck, mm -hmm. you know, back into each other, and they're they're caught in the middle there, right? I mean, machines don't know any different typically. This is big, heavy stuff moving around. So as we're talking here, is all this responsibility on the employer? Yep. Is, is there is there some on the employee to be like, hey, this isn't safe, or is it a hundred percent on the employer side? Should they speak 100%. up? Like, what? Yeah, where where does that land? So the employer, you can't claim ignorance is what it is, what it's called. 
these rules have been around for 50 years, you know, most of them. Um, as when you go into business, you have to do your research, you know, you have to get a business license, you have to get insurance, you know, there, and this is where, why today and why I work so hard is bringing safety out. Everyone knows safety, but they don't understand risk management. Most times when I get called for consulting is to respond to a major incident. OSHA's there. Uh, the last one I did, the company put out about $3 million. I don't know many small businesses that can manage that, let alone lose uh, one of the lead technicians to a back injury for three months. Yeah. You know, that that's crippling. So managing that risk and meeting all these compliance, this is basically an employee's right is the easiest way to say. They have a right to a safe workplace. Yeah. That's why OSHA was founded. You as a business owner have the duty to provide a safe workplace. And even if it's not in these standards, OSHA can still cite you underneath the general duty clause, which means that you basically did not meet your obligation to provide a safe workplace to that employee. I mean, that, I mean, that makes sense. They can't make a rule or a law for every little, little thing, thing everybody does. Right? And nothing passes anymore. At OSHA, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I get it with the whole government and everything. And I know you got like a Mike Rowe thing on here. It looks like I'm one of these things. Where you're yeah, talking, I know. You like safety there. Yeah, I just had him on the podcast. <laughs> I saw the Mike Rowe thing. So I got to ask, what's, what's that about? Well, I know that you like him. So I put Mike Rowe on there because he always has his famous safety third. Uh, so my world, there's a big thing, human organization performance I mentioned earlier. Um, too many times in safety, we work to control the employee. We work to control the employees through their behaviors, and we penalize when we don't see it going right. So Mike Rowe has this famous thing where he likes to stay kind of safety third. And where that hammers is that it is on the employee to actually watch out for their safety. And I actually tell my employees that I am not there to smack your hands when you do something stupid, basically. Um, You have to take personal responsibilities. I try my hardest. I make awesome policies. I give you PPE. I give you training. I give you 24 access to my phone to call me with questions. But ultimately, it is the employee's responsibility to follow it. And the safety third becomes down to where every company says safety priority. As soon as I hear that, I'm like, next. You know, like safety is not a priority. Making money for a business to be more productive, more profitable. That is the American way, you know. So safety is not first. It's not second because it's quality. You want to make a good quality product for people to buy. And then safety kind of follows in that realm. So ultimately, it's on the employee to make sure that their rights are being met and that they're watching out and following what their employer provided because the employer has done the due diligence to examine their workplace. Safety should be a value. It should be built in the culture. And that's where I specialize in that leadership training is making it a value for company. So if there's somebody working somewhere and they feel like this is just unsafe, like what, what should they first do and how do they escalate that if they feel nothing's happening? So, and this is where it gets controversial, you know, and you can report to OSHA, but most of the times you don't really get the response you're seeking unless it's something very major. What they do is they contact the employer and they say X, Y, Z happened. And then there's a fear of retaliation, which it does occur, you know, because then it's on another agency to enforce that. I always encourage that you've written documentation. It's kind of the same for your harassment and discrimination. You make written documentation and record keeping to whoever's in charge. Uh, You also have the ability to do a stop work. 
that every employer and employee can stop work that they feel is unsafe. You're not there to go home in a casket, basically. You're there to earn a paycheck, to provide for your family so you can meet your own goals and dream when the business owner is going to use your labor to make their own goals and dreams, basically. See, there's no one forcing you in a sense to do the work. But if you just come and you complain and complain and it's not documented, it doesn't really give you good teeth. Uh, if you're showing that the employer or is having neglect, so there's a huge thing right now with bathroom access that on some poultry processing lines and some warehouse business that people are wearing diapers because they're not giving adequate I heard time. it was Amazon. Like, we don't get enough bathroom breaks. I was going to, like, shame them out. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it in the yeah. news. It's in mainstream media, right? To, yeah. like, uh, some of the delivery companies peeing in a because in a, in a, you can't get a bathroom. Yeah. Uh, documentation becomes critical because ultimately, sometimes companies need to be held accountable. Uh, and I know that this country sometimes struggles with regulatory, but that's their purpose is we like our rights. All of OSHA regs are rights that we don't have in other countries. I just came from Bogota. I'm, oh, you want to talk about <laughs> some safety stuff there? Yeah. But uh, you always are about, you know, I want my rights. I want my rights to be inspected. I want my rights in a way. Well, make your employer meet those rights too. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, if you're not getting an answer and you got written documentation, you can submit it online anonymously, but with small businesses, that's not a, not a term. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, but you can submit it and force action. Um, just realize there are consequences, you know, and they could be good or negative. I'm not disencouraging reporting, but always try to work in-house first yeah. before you air dirty laundry. Um, because the ocean inspection is a loose cannon. You don't know how that inspector is going to gear, what the response is to what can the business manage. Sometimes. Businesses have what we call risk acceptance. You as a business owner have a risk that you're willing to take on that you tell your employees, we're going to do this and this is the risk I accept. And that's your culture. That's your values. Sometimes they don't match up with employees. You know, so they may think this industry is too dangerous. So you need to go somewhere else that the risk matches to your personal integrity, ethics, and morality preference. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where the realm of all that kind of squeezes them. No, I, I appreciate all that. And I, I'm sure there's people out there that feel unsafe. So giving them all guides there is, is great. Uh, so I, I got kind of one last question for you here. Like, I mean, it sounds like you've been around this for a while. You consult with companies. You've been around the world. If I had to say like, man, what's the worst situation you've ran across or been called into? Is there, is there something that pop in your mind or is it just kind of all blend together at this point? Um, for me, I can walk into a facility and within two or three minutes, the how well their culture and value is. What I encourage for, and what and my biggest standout is, is poor management and poor leadership. So many times you see managers and leaders that have never been trained. Leadership is a skill. Uh, management is a skill that has to be honed and developed. Yeah. Safety will never happen if you do not have upper leadership support. So go on Indeed, look, Every two or three months, you'll see the same companies posting for a safety person. And that is because they think safety guy makes safety. It's actually your line supervisors that make the safety. So when I walk into a facility and there's a fatality or a major incident, I can immediately tell that there's no leadership buy-in, that it's all talk, no action. Um, so it does blend together, but that is the common theme is poor upper leadership support. So is it is it a lack of caring or is it just a lack of not knowing they should have been doing things? Um, most of it's caring. 
you know, because if, if you're having retention issues, if you're getting employees hurt, um, that's what the record keeping is. It's solely to build a trend data, forcing you to look at your trends, you know, and if you're ignoring that, you know, you got three back injuries, you maybe need to evaluate what's going on, you know, uh, lack of knowledge again, comes down to the care. You know, and I can tell you, you care a lot about your company and you put a lot of effort into finding avenues and making your employees successful. Yeah. But that breeds where your retention is not going to be like companies that are suffering with the turnaround. So safety bleeds kind of into the QC, bleeds into the production. Um, I always consider a true safety person to be like a doctor. It gives you the heartbeat of a company. It helps you check in and it's a problem solver. It's not a burden. Well, Thomas, I know we've been talking here a bit about everything and we had a lot of notes. We've had conversations before this and some emails and everything. Anything big I left off that you want to make sure we covered about safety? Uh, I just encourage that you don't blame employees anymore. Um, blame fixes nothing. I encourage employees to report. There's a huge disconnect between management and people doing the job. And that produces a lot of frustration because management tries to tell the people doing the job no, that's not how it's actually done. So encourage reporting, encourage near miss where someone almost got hurt, but never discipline for that. Um, I see that a lot and it just immediately kills all safety hour efforts. There's a difference between motivation and influencing. Motivation is there whenever there's a stimulus or a stick to keep it going, right? But once you take that away, motivation dies. Whenever you have inspiration, you're driving organically. It's going to bloom naturally. So when people, you say, I want you to be safe and you do it in your action, people are going to follow that and replicate it. And then it gets easier and easier. So I had this literally just yesterday, me and another employee manager, we were talking about, you know, we're having, we're having, you know, having a situation, some apartments, some turnover. I'm like, you know, eventually you got to you look yourself in the mirror yeah. <laughs> and realize what it is, right? And they, they said, you know, Tyler, when you, when you point the finger at somebody, right, mm-hmm. just realize there's three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. And that's usually what it is. So very, very well said in everything. And I know, again, I hope if the audience got anything out of this, but you know what you're talking about here. You do consulting work on the side. You're well-versed in this. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, they want to, they you know, they have some questions, they want to learn more, whatever it may be, where can they find you? So my consultant business is Pathfinder Safety Consultant. Also encouraged on LinkedIn. A lot of times people just have a question and I don't, you know, I don't mind answering questions. Like for me, it's like my duty to give out knowledge as much as possible. Most times I turn you to free resources or I turn you to your state OSHA office because they have free consultants at your state OSHA office that are not in enforcement. Uh, so you can reach out to me if you want programs and plans. Again, I'm always willing and, and able to help. So Yeah. I, I can speak to that because we did talk on LinkedIn. You sent me a bunch of stuff. You showed up here at my doorstep with, <laughs> with binders and flash drive. I was like, man, this is, this is great. And you came on the podcast with me. So yeah. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and you know, we're going to wrap up this episode. Again, thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, we end every episode with diagnostics, you know, done right. But really, you got to take care of your customers you got, and your employees. You got to make sure they're safe. And it, like you started the episode of Thomas did, it's de-risking your company as well. And it's making a better workplace and retention and all these things that play into it. It's a piece of the puzzle. Reach out to Thomas if you have questions. He has definitely the heart of a teacher. He wants to help people. He's passionate about this. So thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Like, comment, subscribe, share, all that goodness. We'll catch you on the next episode.